When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Willy, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three. One, two, three, Ned's Richard, two. Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the bad. Harry's twain and Ned the lad. Mary, Bessie, James the vain. Charlie, Charlie, James again. William and Mary, Anna, Gloria, four Georges, William and Victoria. Edward, George and Edward, eighth quickly goes and abdicates, then Georgie six, and Lizzie two, and Charlie next to see us through. That was a rhyme that I learnt at school in the 1960s. And most people of my generation will have learnt that rhyme or a similar one when they were my age. It is, of course, a way of remembering all the English monarchs from William the Conqueror to the present day. And when I was at school in the 60s, Elizabeth was on the throne. She'd been on the throne when I was born. I fully expected her to move on at some point and we'd have the excitement of Charles III coming to the throne. But none of us could have known back then just how long Elizabeth was going to reign and that she was going to become the longest serving British monarch. The other thing we learned at school, which I think is a mnemonic, is no plan like yours to study history wisely, which is the ruling houses in order. Norman, Plantagenet, Lancaster, York, Tudor, Stuart, Hanover and Windsor. These are the sort of things we used to learn back in the day. History was taught in a fairly sort of narrative way. It was one thing after another. It was the kings and queens. It was great men important events, the dates of famous battles, that kind of thing. History today is taught very differently in our schools. When my boys were at school, it was all about studying 
sources. It was about understanding who wrote history and why and which sources they could trust and investigating views of the past and how they might have changed. And they also, rather than trying to get a complete overview of, of British history or world history, they learnt certain parts of it in more detail. So they learnt a lot about the American civil rights movement, uh, the building of the pyramids, the abolition of slavery, the Tudors, uh, everybody does the Tudors, the First World War. So they learnt all these things, but they wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you in what order these things happened. History is a story. We do go from one thing to another. It develops. That rhyme, that piece of doggerel, Willy Willy Harry Stee, presents us with a story, a story of British history told through the list of the monarchs. And one of the things I did in lockdown to keep my brain active was I properly relearnt that rhyme. But I also wanted to find out exactly who all those people were. You know, we all of us, we know little bits and pieces. As I said before, we all sort of know the Tudors, Henry VIII and his six wives, and then Bloody Mary, Queen Elizabeth. We know a bit about William the Conqueror. We know the Shakespearean kings, Henry V, uh, Henry IV, who came in two parts, Richard III. But there's lots of historical detail in those plays that probably goes right over our heads and we want to get on to the next famous soliloquy. So, yeah, I thought it would be interesting to find out who all these people were and how it all fitted together. And on the back of that, I wanted to share that knowledge with you. So this series is going to take those kings in order, starting with Willie, William I, working through all the way up to the present day, to King Charles III. And here we are just in time for his coronation, which I thought was going to happen many, many years ago. And maybe by now we might have passed on to someone else and this, this, this rhyme would have been added to. But it's quite interesting because I think that because Queen Elizabeth did rule for so long, and because her reign was, was largely so uncontroversial and placid, she sort of just sailed through it, not ruffling too many feathers. You know, essentially, she didn't really do anything. It's given us a distorted view of the monarchy, a distorted idea of how our monarchs have always behaved. We believe that they've behaved in this sort of stately and statesmanlike manner, that they have been born to serve and all they care about is the, is the country and a smooth transition to the next ruler. And the rhyme, Willy Willy Harry Stee, sort of uh, gives the false impression that it is a nice, neat, rhyming procession. But actually, if you look back at the line that connects Queen Elizabeth II, well, that connects King Charles III back to William the Conqueror, it is by no means a straight line. It's a jagged line. It's broken in places. There are bits tied together. There are other bits pulled in from elsewhere as we've imported our, our new monarchs from overseas. And there's a lot of controversy these days, everyone going on about Prince Harry and how disgracefully he's behaving. And is this the end of the monarchy? Has he got no respect? Has he got no idea of history? Well, you know, if you look back at some of the things that our kings and queens have done in the past and our Dukes of York, our spares, Harry's behaviour is not worth commenting on at all, really. The history of the British monarchy is a history of fratricide, patricide, matricide, poisoning, executions, starving to death, uh, kicking out kings and, as I say, bringing in others from overseas. It's a 
tawdry and sordid tale for the most part, and thus quite an interesting one. And so this series is um, its quite old school, the idea of a narrative history, also the idea of you know doing our monarchs in order. But through talking about each monarch, looking at each monarch, I'm hoping that we'll learn a bit about what was going on, not just in Britain, but in the wider world. It is a washing line on which we can hang a great deal of history. And I hope if you stick with this series from Willie through to Charlie Three, that you will have a better understanding of your own history, your own British history. Uh, and I will too, because, you know, I'm still studying this. I'm not exactly making it up as I go along, but I'm not a historian by any means. I'm merely interested. So uh, what I will do in each in each episode, I will I will give a, a, a rundown on the monarch and then I will get in a proper historian to talk in more detail and with more authority uh, about certain aspects of their reign and about what was going on at the time. And I'm very excited that our proper historian for this episode is the brilliant Tom Holland, who some of you may know from the Rest is History podcast. I've known Tom for a few years. He's not only a great bloke, but he's also incredibly knowledgeable and interesting about history. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to him. I, as I say, I went to school in the 1960s and education was very different then. I went to a, a prep school called Font Hill in Sussex. And in the words of Rob Reiner in Spinal Tap, don't look for it, it isn't there anymore. Like many of these um, British prep schools, public schools, particularly prep schools, many, many of them have closed down as our education needs have changed. Most of these prep schools, and indeed uh, most of the public schools, apart from the old historical ones, were set up to service the British Empire. As middle class people were posted overseas, they would put their boys primarily into boarding schools where they would get a proper English education. And as the empire diminished and people wanted to spend more time with their children. Most of these prep schools have, have long gone. And certainly when I was there, my, my prep school, Font Hill, felt like something from, an, from another century. It was quite small and quite eccentric. We didn't have forms. Each, each teacher had their own classroom and we would go to them. So at the top of the school was Miss Drinkle, an elderly spinster who taught English and instilled in me a love of, of books and reading by reading to us The Dawn Treader, Dr. Doolittle and The Water Babies and stuff like that. Next to Miss Drinkle was Mr. Taylor, a small round man with a round bald head like a boiled ham and a tweed suit. And he taught maths and sustained himself through the day with a, with a flask of gin. Downstairs from Mr. Taylor was Mr. Jeffries, with a great aquiline nose and a great mane of white hair, looked like an American bald eagle, and he taught geography. And one wall of his classroom was taken up with a gigantic map of the world. And even then, my young self knew that this map was quite out of date. It had obviously been made at the height of the British Empire, because about two-thirds of the map was coloured in pink as British territories, colonies, parts of the empire, including on his map, um, India, the Indian subcontinent was still, according to him, part of the British Empire, even though it was about 20 years since we'd given it back to its rightful owners. But it gave you a sense of that British 
dominance of the world as as it had been. And of course, through this series, I will touch on empire and uh, the fallout from that. But across the landing from Mr. Jeffrey's room was Mr. Cooper's room. And Mr. Cooper was the history teacher, a huge, great, round-bellied man who wore a bright red waistcoat and a big bow tie. My elder brother, Andrew, ended up teaching at the school when he was still a teenager. And all the teachers lived in the school. And he would often witness Mr. Taylor and Mr. Cooper staggering back from the pub at night and collapsing into the flower beds outside. Um, it very much was like Evelyn War's decline and fall. But around Mr. Cooper's wall was this frieze that had been made by some pupils long since moved on. And it was a, uh, a narrative, a historical story of, of Great Britain, starting from Stonehenge, going through Roman Britain, the Anglo-Saxons, then through the kings, or it went all the way around the walls until it caught up with the present day, somewhere in the mid-60s. And on it were those significant dates and the battles and pictures of the kings and queens and 1666, the Great Fire of London, 1914 to 18, the First World War. And what you did at the school is when you started as um, an eight-year-old, you started at one end of this frieze and you worked your way around it. You worked your way through British history until when you were 13, you got to the end of it and you moved on to your designated public school. So this series is going to be very much working my way around Mr. Cooper's freeze. And as I say, I wanted to start with, with Willie, with uh, King William I, William the Conqueror. But I realised I need to sort of fill in a bit of backstory, because although he is considered the first of our modern monarchs, that, um, that King Charles can follow a line back to, this jagged line, there were, of course, monarchs and rulers in Britain before then. That legacy, the old Anglo-Saxon rulers, was completely wiped out when King William invaded, Duke William as he was then, and he sort of drew a line through it and started with year zero with the start of his reign. I want to fill you in on a little bit more of that before we start on, on Willie. It reminds me a bit of Wagner writing his great opera cycle, the Ring Cycle, based on German pagan mythology, which is very similar to um, Norse mythology, and it is the mythology that was uh, imported into Britain by the Anglo-Saxons, the story of Wodin and, and the other gods in Valhalla. And he wrote his, his first great opera, Gotterdammerung, the twilight of the gods, where we see everything going terribly wrong and come crashing down. But having written that opera, he realised he'd need to write another one to explain some of the events before that. So he wrote Siegfried, and having written Siegfried, he realised he needed to write something to set up Siegfried, so he wrote The Valkyrie. And then having written these three great operas, he thought it would be great to play them all together, but it would need a little sort of short introduction. So he wrote his three-hour-long Das Rheingold to set the whole thing up. So I'm going to have to do something similar to set this series up. And I was thinking, I'll just do one quick introduction. And then I thought, oh no, I might need to do more. So I'm going to do two quick, well, I hope they're going to be quick, introductions before we get on to Willie. The first of them is going to be the prehistory of Britain and uh, covering Roman Britain. And the second one, the second episode will be Anglo-Saxon Britain. 
So where does our history start? If you go way back, um, the British Isles used to be a peninsula sticking out to the west of, of Europe. We were connected to what is we now think of as the European mainland by this, uh, what we call a land bridge now, which is low-lying, swampy marshland, which is now called Doggerland. And perhaps when they came up with the name Doggerland, they didn't realise some of the other implications that that might put into people's minds, but put that out of your minds. Uh, it was named Doggerland after Dogger Bank, which is the one sort of surviving bit of this landmass, although that still is underwater, because about 10,000 years ago, the planet warmed up in a familiar story. The great ice shelf collapsed in Scandinavia, a huge lake uh, in, in America overflowed and the sea levels rose dramatically and flooded all this land. It separated Ireland from, from Wales and it separated Britain from the mainland. And from that point, we became a distinctive entity because we had been part of a, of a Celtic speaking group of tribes uh, that existed in Western Europe largely in France, Belgium, Holland, Western Germany, and uh, across Doggerland into Britain. And we all spoke a common language. But once we were cut off, we started developing independently. Now, not a huge amount is known about these people, the Celts, as we all were. There doesn't seem to be a lot of written evidence uh, that the Celts themselves wrote down about themselves. And so like so much of the ancient past, we're piecing bits together from archaeology and place names and things found in burial mounds. But our, our information is quite patchy and our information and our knowledge of, of pre-Roman Britain is quite patchy. The first sort of modern human discovered the remains still remaining was in 8000 BC, a, the remains of a skeleton and a skull were found in a cave in the Cheddar Gorge. This man, young man in his 20s, was named Cheddar Man. Very little is known about him, other than the fact that his skull was caved in. And it's a mystery as to how he ended up in this cave. Had he been attacked by an animal and crawled in there to die? Had he been killed in some kind of sacrificial ritual? Or had he been murdered by someone and his body hidden there? But it is a mystery, like so much of our ancient past. You know, there are bits and pieces. This Stonehenge that was built about 5,000 years ago, an extraordinary monument which, which demonstrates a, a, you know, a strong level of cooperation amongst the British people at the time, a reasonable use of technology to get these stones there, to, to build this extraordinary thing. But beyond that, we know very little about it. Interestingly, Stonehenge is actually owned by King Charles. It's, uh, it's crown property. Must be weird being a king and thinking, going through a list of all the things you own. But Britain and the British Isles probably come into history in the 4th century BC, when a Greek explorer called Pythias, who had uh, he'd explored the Mediterranean, he'd uh, travelled through a lot through Western Europe, he'd gone north, he was the first person to record seeing the northern lights and he travelled extensively through Britain and around Britain. He circumnavigated it and was the first person to describe it accurately as a sort of triangle with a blob off to one side. And he talked about the the Prithins or the Pritanniki 
who was the people living there, which the Romans called the Britannii, and that, uh, the islands became known as Britannia. In the first century BC, a Roman historian called Diodorus Siculus was the first person to sort of enter this into Roman history. And yes, they called us Insulae Britannicae, the Britannic Isles. England was Albion, Hibernia was Ireland, um, Caledonia was Scotland. And there was another area called Fuel, slightly mysterious, which could have been Iceland or Orkney or somewhere like that. But the Romans were becoming interested in us because the, the Celtic people of Britain were, were, had always been trading with the rest of Europe. And more and more stuff was coming out of Britain, particularly from the mines. There was a lot of tin mining and tin, of course, was added to copper to make bronze, which was a very valuable, useful metal. But there was also gold mines and there was also obviously quite a lot of agriculture going on in Britain and production of wool. But the Romans were a little bit suspicious of us because we still had connections with France, who the Romans called Gaul. And that was the sort of generic word for the Celts, as far as the Romans were concerned. And of course, we know all about the Gauls through Asterix, the Gaul. And there are still remnants of the British people being called Gauls. The French still call Wales Pays de Gal, the land of the Gauls. And we have obviously the, the Irish and Scottish Celtic languages, Gaelic and Gaelic. And so th these, these are the sort of remnants of the, the, this general Celtic community that existed. And as I say, not much is known about the, the Celts other than their sort of ruling elite were the Druids. They were religious rulers. They were, they were in charge of the law, both L-A-W and L-O-R-E and bureaucracy. And they sort of held the whole thing together. And most of us probably know uh, most about Druids from Getafix in Asterix because the, our modern Druids um, in Wales and who turn up at the summer solstice at uh, Stonehenge, that's entirely made up. It's all guesswork. Nobody really knows what the Druids did. But as I say, the, the Romans started to get interested in Britain. And one of the dates quite a lot of people know, I won't say all of us, is 55 BC when Julius Caesar decided to, to invade Britain. And it seemed like he'd been waiting for, the Romans had been waiting for, for the British to start making coins. So once they started making coins and using a form of money, it meant that we were potentially taxable. And this is what the, the, the big thrust behind the Roman Empire was to keep um, expanding into areas where they could get more tax. So off he went in, in 55 BC under the pretext that the, the Gallic leaders, because Rome by this point was, uh, had subjugated Gaul, but there was still strong resistance. And Caesar claimed that many of the resistance fighters and the important leaders who might stand up to them kept disappearing over to Britain and being sheltered by the British and raising new armies and coming back. So under this pretext, Julius Caesar invaded in 55 BC and famously said, Veni vidi vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. Uh, what he should have said is veni vidi evi domum i came i saw i went home because he didn't get much further than the beach he had a fairly hostile welcome he stuck a standard in the ground and said i claim britain for rome and then went home that was one of the things i was always taught veni vidi vici but it turns out he didn't say it when he landed in britain he said it after defeating some people in the middle east after a big battle there 
Yeah, history is a is a slippery thing. He went back in 54 BC, got as far as the Thames and then went home again. And then the Romans didn't bother for some time until in 43 AD, the Emperor Claudius took a proper army to Britain, properly invaded. And again, those people of my generation will will know that Emperor Claudius is um, from I, Claudius, as played by Sir Derek Jacobi. Marvellous series, well worth watching. He was a Roman emperor who properly invaded Britain and, and it stuck. The Romans colonised Britain and stayed there for about 400 years. And they largely stayed in the south. The south of Britain, southern England, was very fertile, was pretty much settled. The, the people there were used to having a long trading history with, with Europe. They'd been trading with the Romans, and as far as they were concerned, there was no need to kick up a fuss and keep fighting the Romans. So they may as well carry on trading with them and reap the benefits of the increased wealth that the Romans were bringing and, and also all those other benefits, you know, the famous Monty Python line from Life of Brian, what did the Romans ever do for us? They brought civilization, they brought culture, they brought a sense of history, a sense of the world, they built proper stone houses and all the things that where people always bang on about, the central heating and the baths and the, the marble floors and the bureaucracy and the roads and linking everything together and to a certain extent unifying the place because it, it was just a bunch of, of sort of individual tribes who didn't really see themselves as being a country and, and, and Romans as we know when someone invades somewhere or attacks people they tend to sort of bond together and, and it tends to create a greater sense of, of nationalism, as we're seeing today in Ukraine. So in southern England, it was fairly settled. There was some incursion into Wales, into Cornwall, uh, because of the tin mining there. But the further north the Romans went, the harder it became. And there were riches in, in Scotland, in Caledonia. There were uh, minerals to be mined. The people were pretty inhospitable the, the the land the countryside was pretty inhospitable and it and it didn't generate huge amounts of 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 local wealth so famously the romans uh, under the emperor hadrian built a big wall across to keep the warlike picts and scots from invading the picts were the native celts the scots were actually an irish tribe who'd come over from northeast ireland and and settled in scotland but between them they caused a lot of uh, problems for the for the Romans who considered all right we'll we'll just build a wall and keep them out we won't bother with them, um, but the south south of England flourished there was very little resistance and the first thing the Romans did was to try and destroy the Druids and they sort of drove them into Wales and then they drove them to Anglesey started attacking them there uh, in about uh, sixty A.D. but whilst they were doing that a tribe in the east of England the Iceni under their leader, their queen, Boudicca, Bodicea, however you want to call her, rose up after the, the uh, Romans had foolishly raped Boudicea and her daughters, and possibly because they didn't like the idea of there being a female ruler, the Romans being a very patrician society. But anyway, uh, Boudicca rose up, stormed west, burning towns and cities as she went, got as far as London, burnt that down, at which point the Roman army decided to come back from Anglesey 
and basically wiped out Boudicca and the Iceni. This is a problem is you can rise up against the might of the Roman Empire, but they are so much better equipped and more organized. And if you defeat one army, there'll be another army along behind it. And that was really the last serious threat to the Romans in southern Britain, at least. So yes, the southern British benefited and profited from, from Roman occupation to a certain extent and all the improvements that the Romans brought. And, and, and one of the probably the most longest lasting things that the Romans introduced to Britain was Christianity. It's extraordinary to think that this, this tiny minority religion that had grown up in the Middle East as an offshoot of, of, of Judaism managed to spread and, and take over the entire Roman Empire. I think part of the reason Christianity was so successful was because it, Christianity sort of makes more sense than paganism. The Romans had imported the Greek religion, Zeus and the other gods, all living on top of Mount Olympus, and all these insane stories about them and all the magic that they were doing. And um, there were so many of them. And, and the Romans basically just changed the names and ported the same system. But you always think, looking back, did they really believe that these gods existed and were, and were living, having this sort of soap opera um, up in some high place? Or was it just a sort of cultural thing? And was it just stories to entertain each other? Because, you, you know, as a poet, you could make up your own version of these, these myths. But the idea that there is one God and is this just a sort of mysterious, faceless power in this mysterious place called heaven is a lot easier to believe in many ways. And particularly when you then personify that and hum humanize it by having Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come down and be his representative on earth, uh, sort of standing in for all of us and taking on all our sins. That seems to make a lot more sense. It, it's a much more modern religion than the Roman religion. And it spread, and it spread partly because the Romans were, they did have the empire. It was all so well connected. It was very easy for ideas to travel, for people to travel, and for ideas to take root. Inevitably, priests and monks came to England, Britain, to spread the word. And in 306 AD, Constantine became emperor of Rome, and he became the first fully Christian emperor of Rome. And Constantine had been a, a soldier, an officer. He'd brought an army to England to help his father, who was another army man. And whilst he was in England, uh, his army declared him emperor of Rome. There was a big civil war going on at the time. There were two other guys claiming to be emperors. Uh, Constantine had a pretty good army. Um, he was actually made emperor of Rome in a ceremony outside what is today York Minster, what was then was the um, marketplace in Eboricum, the Roman name for York. And he took his army back to Europe and eventually defeated these other claimants and set himself up, not in Rome, but in Byzantium, which he renamed Constantinople, which is across his Istanbul today. And that's where the Roman Empire was based for a long time. So Britain always had a lot of connections with, with the rise of Christianity. And it was one of the things that, that was able to unite the people with a common identity of being Christian. So the events of Constantine's life gives us some indication of what was going on in the Roman Empire. It had grown so big, it was starting to fracture. There was a lot of internal dissent. There were a lot of people um, setting themselves up as emperors in different places. And it also started to come under threat 
increased threat from outside, as these tribes from the Asian steppes, instead of fighting each other, started to unify. And particularly the Huns under Attila, they started forging west, these hordes of um, uh, horsemen, these great cavalry armies, uh, forcing many other tribes to sort of flee ahead of them in these great migrations. These Germanic tribes all moved west, the likes of the Goths and the Visigoths and the, the Franks. The Franks were originally a Germanic tribe who ended up coming down into, into France and taking over the Gauls. And it eventually changed from, from being called Gaul into being called France after the Franks. And a lot of these tribes were then jostling on the borders of the empire. And uh, Attila managed to take his Huns all the way to Rome. He sacked Rome and was sort of on the verge of taking over the Roman Empire. But on his wedding night, he drank too much, got a terrible nosebleed and dropped dead. And that was kind of, he'd been the person who'd been sort of holding the Huns together and, and the Hunnish threat diminished. But there was still this turmoil going on, which meant that around about 400, the Romans recalled their legions from the Britons. They needed the army to, to fight in the civil war and to fight against these invaders around the borders. They carried on trying to tax Britain. They said, you, you just carry on paying us, but we won't actually be there to look after you. And Britain was as much under threat as anywhere else. And so they decided to stop paying tax to the Romans because now the Picts and the Scots were coming in and invading a lot more from the north. Now the Romans are gone, but there was also people from overseas were coming over. The, the Danes were starting to come down, uh, as the British called them, the early Vikings. And there's some evidence that the British in the south started paying some of these Germanic tribes, the Angles and the Saxons, to actually come over and as mercenary armies to, to help them out and restore order, which in the long run didn't go terribly well for the British. And that's what I'll be looking at in the next episode. So stick with it, folks. We will eventually get on to Willy Willy Harry Stee, but there were several thousand years of history for you. In the next episode, we only have to cover 400 years. And then once we get into William I, we will be dealing with a single lifetime. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So my plan in the series is that after I have given my talk, I get a proper bona fide historian in to actually bring a bit of gravitas to the proceedings and a bit of veritas as well, because a lot of what I say is just my take on things. And I'm really excited, pleased and indeed honoured to have as my special guest, 
today, Mr. History himself, the wonderful Tom Holland, who with Dominic Sandbrook co-hosts The Rest is History. Um, hello, Tom. Hello, morning. Uh, morning. Great to have you here. Now, I believe that The Rest is History is now the biggest and most successful podcast in the UK. Is that what the head of the company that produces you told you? Yes, I did talk to him before. That's what he told <laughs> well, me. Is he, is he what, lying if, through his teeth? No, of course not. If, if that's what if that's what he says, then I'm more than happy to back him up on that. No, I mean, it has been extraordinarily successful. How many have you recorded now? Oh, um, over 300. We put out two episodes a week, sometimes three. And we've been doing it for about two and a half years now. So that's why there have been so many episodes. God. And you cover um, a huge, I mean, you cover all of history. Well, we've we've gone from the Neanderthals um, right the way up to Silicon Valley, so uh, we try and do the the entire sweep, um, and we can basically do that because I cover all the ancient stuff, and Dominic covers the modern stuff, and we both kind of muck in to do the stuff in between. But I mean, you know, I, I've I've realised as I foolhardily embarked on this project that. I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. And I'm realising I've, I've got a lot of history to cover. But isn't that great, though? I mean, that's part of the fun of it. You learn more if you have to have your, you know, you have a way of, of testing your knowledge. So I guess that's why people write essays and things, is to concentrate the mind, to give you a focus. And deciding that, you know, you can, you can study anything that you want and then talk about it. And it's a wonderful way to learn about periods or aspects of history that maybe you didn't know about. So it's a kind of great thrill. But with you, Tom, I mean, I've known you for a while now. I first met you, I just read your book Rubicon, which was about the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire, which I absolutely loved. And I, and I bumped into you at a, at a literary do. <laughs> uh, and well, I I think uh, that my excitement was considerably greater to be meeting you. Oh, <laughs> as a huge Fausto fan. Oh well, thank you, thank you. But um, it, it, I was instantly struck by not only you're a very nice person, but you seem to know absolutely everything. I really don't. I can promise you, I really, really don't. So you were the perfect person to have on here to talk about um, pre-Anglo-Saxon England. And so, you know, I mean, I mentioned in, in my talk that before the arrival of the Romans, we were a Celtic people and that... Well. Oh, I... right. Okay. So I'm, <laughs> I've got it wrong from the start. Well, so the idea that there were Celtic peoples is, is a kind of later back projection. Right. Um, it's a kind of romantic idea that, say, the Scots, the Welsh, the Irish, the Cornish have a shared Celtic identity. Um, and that the Anglo-Saxons are, you know, the intruders. And there's a kind of measure of truth to that. But the the sense that these were all people who could be identified as Celtic is not something that is found in, in certainly in the Roman sources. So the names that are given to geographical areas and to the people who live in them is a subject of enormous controversy because... Um, they're controversial in the context of, of the original period, you know, the ancient world. Mm. The Romans are imperialists. Our sources are derived from them. So yes. they often tell us how the Romans saw the native peoples of Britain yes. rather than what the Britons themselves thought. Um, but also because the ancient past has been so contested in more recent ages, 
it means that the, the names of peoples, the name, the, the ways in which their history has been understood kind of bears the stress marks of, say, relations between England, Wales and Scotland or romantic attitudes about the nature of the nation or immigration or anything like that. So it's it's I think that that's both the fascination and frustration of ancient history is that you have the constant sense that even the names that you're applying to places come freighted with centuries mm. and centuries of kind of political weight. But I mean, do, we, we seem to know very little about pre-Roman Britain. There, there's not a lot of, I mean, certainly there's no written evidence, is there? Not really written, no. But I mean, the the great thing about Britain and its relationship to archaeology is that people have been digging this island up and kind of making notes about it and drawing maps probably longer than anywhere else so the archaeological records for britain are, are, mm. are sensationally good and so to the extent that archaeology can tell us what was going on in the the, the pre-roman the prehistoric period you know, it's it's been very very it, it and but, continues to be very very stress tested so we do actually have a, a pretty good sense of perhaps the the broadest fundamentals how it was that people came to to, to this island um the kind of the broad broad patterns of cultural evolution but obviously we don't know the names of individual leaders i mean even th fundamental things like the builders of stonehenge what happened to them i mean we did we just don't know yeah well i mean you know in stonehenge we do have this massive piece of archaeology one of the biggest bits of archaeological evidence in the world it must be but it seems to be that People still don't really know what it was for and how it got there. There probably isn't one explanation about what it was for, because it's very, very, you know, the, the process by which it came to be built is very, very long. I mean, talking centuries, millennia. Hmm. And so, it, it, I don't know, if you think about um, structures in cities today, their purpose evolves with time. Um, hmm. And it may be that the final stages when the great rocks are going up, that people's memories of what the site had originally been for were completely false you know not <laughs> once it became a bingo hall and then a yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> exactly um but the, the I, I mean the really intriguing thing is that the, the people who build it as far as we can tell from dna they are pretty much they pretty much vanish shortly after the construction mm. and uh new peoples arrive in britain people with the with the the very unmenacing sounding name of beaker people because of their <laughs> their beakers um but the question is you know what happens is it genocide is it disease uh what's starvation. going on with starvation i mean is it civilizational collapse the sense that something really radical a massive great rupture occurs between the building of stonehenge and the the the, the millennia that follow I mean, it's absolutely there. It's written in the DNA. But, you know, as I say, we don't know exactly what it was that happened. So really, I mean, Britain really becomes a sort of entity that we know about because of the, the Roman interest in it. Yes. Yeah, so um, the Greeks are aware of it. Uh, I mean, Herodotus, who is actually the guy who writes the first history, debates whether there are islands in the where we know Britain is and mm. decides that there, there weren't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he thinks that Britain doesn't exist. But there's um, a, a guy called Pythias, who is a, a Greek from um, Marseille, which is a, a Greek settlement. He makes a voyage to Britain and writes it up. Um, and this then gets read and kind of feeds into the geographies. So there is a kind of vague sense of Britain as, as, a, as a real place. Mm. But certainly for the Romans in the first century BC, when 
Julius Caesar is embarking on the conquest of Gaul, present day France. Britain is the essence of barbarism. It lies yeah. beyond the ocean and, and the ocean is imagined as circling the world. And so islands that lie beyond the span of the world are peculiarly fantastical. So back in Rome, when, when Caesar first in 55 BC and then 54 BC launches a kind of strike across the channel, it's been compared by one historian in its impact to, to the moon landings. This is mm. seen as being absolutely kind of an astonishing feat. The tr <laughs> but, but, but equally, Caesar is absolutely on top of, you know, he has all kinds of information. He, he, he has spies, he has scouts. So actually, he, he knows that, that Britain isn't that strange, that the, the peoples who live there have been fighting in Gaul, um, often in alliance with the various Gallic tribes that he's been conquering. He knows that they are a people who um, have begun to use coinage modelled on on Roman coins, yeah. that they um, that merchants travel there and that the Britons are up for buying wine and all the kind of the mod cons, I don't know, olive oil and all that, that kind of thing. Um, so the, the early Waitrose, I guess. And yeah, and, and so it's simultaneously fantastical, but also something that ambitious Roman generals can see could easily be conquered. So, Tom, I asked earlier the famous Monty Python question, what did the Romans ever do for us? But I'd quite like to turn that around and ask, you know, what did we ever do for the Romans? Why did they want to invade? I, th I think partly because it was there. So after Caesar's invasions, the Romans leave it alone basically for a century. Yeah. Uh, Augustus, who, who succeeds... You know, he's Julius Caesar's adopted son. He becomes what we now recognise as the first of the Roman emperors um, at the head of this kind of great imperial autocracy. He has bigger fish to fry. He mm. is not interested in Britain. And so he is content to leave it alone. And over the, 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 the rule of his successors, Britain is it's kind of coming into the, the, the Roman cultural ambit more and more. It's it, trade links are building up. Um, and it may even, you know, there may even be tribal leaders in Britain who are acknowledging Roman rule. So there seems to be Roman foundries that are building up on the south coast even before the Roman invasion oh, in 43 right. AD. But the reason why the Romans in 43 AD decide that they will invade is basically because the new emperor, Claudius, is not actually a blood relation of Augustus. Um so he doesn't have the sacred blood of the founder of the dynasty in his veins. He also is regarded by many as a kind of idiot. He has, he, he's, you know, people who've seen like Claudius will know that he stammers, he has a limp. And basically he wants to, he wants to make a name for himself. Right. And conquering barbarian realms is a brilliant way to do that. And crossing the, crossing the ocean, venturing into this fabulous land is a brilliant way for Claudius to demonstrate his his prowess and indeed his virility, because the the very earliest image of Britannia, you know, the kind of the image of Britannia as a woman, she is basically being sexually assaulted by Claudius. It's a kind of stone relief of him as a big strapping guy without a hint of a limp or a stammer. And sure. this is how it's presented. Before that, Caligula had sort of made a vague attempt. Yeah, so this very mysterious, very mysterious episode where according to the sources he draws the legions up on the beach kind of by Boulogne and um orders them to draw their swords and then tells them to pick up seashells <laughs> and nobody's quite sure what's going on there there's there's clearly some kind of message some some stunt that's probably been lost in the transmission 
because people who wrote about Caligula had all kinds of reasons to detest him. Yes. So we're not quite sure. But I think what is evident is that Caligula was planning to invade Britain and mm. that Claudius's ability to summon sufficient legions to embark on the conquest is due to the fact that Calig- Caligula had massively beefed up the numbers of legions in, right. in, in the northern part of the empire. And, and did it work for Claudius? Did he get respect? For yeah, it works tremendously well. Uh, he's actually only there for a few weeks. So yeah. he leaves the, the initial stages of the conquest to his um, the commander of the expedition, Aulus Plautius. But the moment it's clear that Britain's going to fall, or at least the, the southern, the most prosperous southern reaches are going to fall, yeah. Claudius is able to, to bag all the credit. And he then stages a tremendous triumph back in Rome. And the loot is, is kind of paraded through the streets of the capital. Everyone cheers. Hurrah. Claudius is a great hero. And and the Romans stay there for, for 400 years. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, what did they what did they think of the of the British? They seem to have really despised them. <laughs> I mean, and right the way up to the fourth century, you have a there's there's um a British a Briton writes some poems, and there's a senator in Aquitaine, so in in southwest Gaul, who just pisses himself with hilarity at the very idea <laughs> of a Briton writing a poem. So back in the time of Caesar, Cicero, the great orator kind of the most cultured man in the Roman Republic finds the idea that that you know that you might find poets or people of sophistication or civilization in Britain hilarious I mean this is self-evidently <laughs> insane no one from you know Britons are absolute savages and four centuries on you're you're getting exactly the same thing it's as though you know, four centuries of Roman occupation have had no impact at all on the way that the Roman elites understand Britain and indeed there's a sense that um I mean, Britain is a very, at least the northern reaches of it are very militarized. So there was a, there was mm. a stage at the towards the end of the first century AD where the whole of Britain seemed to the Roman high command to be with that it would be conquered. So under the governorship of a mm. man called Agricola, who was written up by his son-in-law Tacitus, it looks as though, seen from Rome, the whole of Britain has been conquered. So what what is today Scotland as well as England? There's then an absolute meltdown on the Balkan frontier and all the legions who've been posted to Britain, one of them, the one that's been posted to Scotland has to be summoned back so that the legionary camp in Scotland, which is just above the Firth of Forth, gets pulled down. They kind of bury all the metal deep in, in the ground so that the uh, the barbarians won't be able to get hold of it and turn it into spearheads or whatever. You know, that's how they were found. And basically the northern frontier, the, the, the northern reaches are abandoned because they're not worth the effort is the feeling to the Romans. So that means obviously you need a frontier. And famously, the frontier is Hadrian's Wall. There's also a, a wall that's briefly built by um, Hadrian's successor, the Antonine Wall, but that you know gets pulled back. So essentially, Hadrian's Wall comes to mark the frontier. And that has to be militarized. And so that means that large reaches of the north are effectively under, under military rule. And that's not a pleasant condition for the natives to be in. You know, having lots of soldiers around, it's not 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 remotely fun um and it means that because there is this threat from the north britain has to remain militarized in a way that say provinces like spain or gaul aren't and by the third century when um things are, are, are starting to look very bad for for the roman empire it's starting you know, the frontiers are starting to collapse britain becomes the great granary of the Northern Empire. And you get all these kind of great villas sprouting up in the Cotswolds and 
things like that. And so there's a sense that southern Britain, at least, is is very prosperous. And this these are this is the age where the villas that I'm sure people will have visited and the mosaics and yes. everything are coming. But by the fourth century, although that prosperity endures, at the same time, you are starting to get the fragmentation that is starting again to happen along the frontiers is starting to impact on Britain. So you're starting to get people tribal groups who are crossing, breaking through Hadrian's Wall, people who are coming from, raiders coming from Ireland, raiders coming from what would now be Germany, so Saxony, mm. notoriously. And at the same time, by the end of the fourth century, because there is this vast reservoir of troops in Britain, ambitious commanders are using them to, to, to strike across the channel and to mm. try and make themselves emperor. So St. Jerome, the guy who translates the Bible into Latin, has this phrase of Britain that it is a womb of tyrants. So in other <laughs> words, it's it's a breeding ground for ambitious military men who want to make them, you know, warlords who want to make yeah. themselves Caesar. And essentially, this is why Roman Britain comes to an end, is that endless commanders have been stripping Britain of its garrisons until there's almost nothing left. Mm. And actually, the, the last of these is a man called Magnus Maximus, who, I mean, very modest name, <laughs> great the greatest uh, so with a name like that nominative determinism of course he's going to try and make himself caesar so he 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 strips britain of of its final garrisons crosses the channel has a brief splurge of success and then gets killed and what he has done is essentially instruct the native britons he's given them roman titles uh said you know you are in charge of 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 defending the province you administration is in your hands and these are figures who will be remembered by various Welsh princes as their ancestors. And mm -hmm. so Magnus Maximus comes to be remembered in Welsh tradition as a guy called Maxim Gledig. And he is mentioned by name in the, the anthem that was sung by Welsh fans in Qatar at the World Cup. <laughs> so he's the only Roman emperor to have featured in a football chant <laughs> at Qatar. So that's a kind of immortality. It is. It is. So, I mean, so essentially, as the, as the Germans come, come in, the, well, or do they, I mean, so, so, well, we're, we're dealing with that in the next <laughs> episode. And, and I know it's contentious exactly, you know, is it an, in, is it an invasion? Is it just a, assimilation whatever but let's not get into that now but i mean it are the sort of the english sort of forced into wales cornwall scotland whatever um, i know not all of them certainly uh, people speaking a kind of uh, um one of the things that distinguishes the province of britannia from the rest of of the western roman empire is that we do not speak a form of Latin. So mm. Italian, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Catalan, these are these are basically forms of Latin, but we don't. We speak a Germanic language. And so the, the, the mystery then is is why? Mm. Why is that? Something seems to have happened. And to what extent does it reflect the fact that Britain was a less Romanized province than yeah. than elsewhere in, in the Roman world? And to what extent does it reflect the historical reality of an invasion by germanic speaking settlers and as as you'll know this is hugely contested yes yes 
and 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 is is Welsh closer to what the English would have spoken? Do we know? Well, the, certainly the British inhabitants. Yes, it's 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 the original. I mean, right, much more than English. It's the original language. And yet, the English have never been able to speak Welsh or understand it for, for centuries. So, so there are various theories about that. One is the the traditional story that comes to be told by Bede, who is the the first historian of mm. of of of, Eng of English history, says that um, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes arrived in what had been the province of Britannia and settle it, and God gives it to them because the Britons basically hadn't tried to convert them to Christianity when they arrived, so they had to be punished by losing all their lands. And it's kind of modelled, it's, it's, it's an account that's modelled on the arrival of the children of Israel in the promised land. Right. That, you know, they're a kind of chosen people who endowed by God with these prosperous lands and that they drive the um, the Britons who be into, into the, the kind of the fastnesses of Wales. And Welsh means foreigner. It means yes. people yes. who are inferior. And that is one theory. Another theory is that, um, of course, there were Germanic settlers, perhaps mercenaries who were, had been kind of dotted around the province of Britannia, who rebel, um, who seize the commanding heights in certainly the eastern reaches of the province. And because they are dominant, because their language, therefore, is more prestigious, um, native Welsh speakers, speakers of the British language, um, start to accommodate themselves to the new order by learning to speak English. Mm. And one of the, I'm sure you probably touched this in your episode on the Anglo-Saxons, but the ancestor Kurdic, who is the ancestor of, of the, the kings of Wessex, so Alfred the Great, you know, the, the line reading right the way up to Charles III, that, that's a Welsh name, it's a British name, it's not an Anglo-Saxon name. So um, the sense there in that genealogy that there is a kind of, welsh english fusion going on in some way that we don't <laughs> quite understand and another much more radical and fringe theory is that actually a, a, a proto-english kind of germanic language was being spoken along the eastern seaboard of britain for centuries perhaps mm. you know perhaps this is what boudicca was speaking boudicca the great rebel against the romans back in the first century um so that's an alternative theory. And it's very hard to know. I mean, I don't think there's any any conclusive opinion on that. And mm. it may be that 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 elements of all those theories are true. That in certain well, places I was hoping there was in certain I'm places there was invasion. A historian on who would who would say, No, this is history. This is what happened. Well, history history is often <laughs> particularly in ancient history, not knowing. Uh, yes. Exactly. Now, uh, but the compromise, the compromise position, I think, would be to say that it might all of those. You know, there might be areas where there is a full scale military invasion. There might be reasons where there was long scale colonization. There might be areas where the process of assimilation is more peaceful. But, mm. you know, this is a, an ongoing contested process. And it's been the the, the, the challenge of, of solving it is crucially rooted at the moment in in what DNA tests tell us. Right. And as someone who's absolutely not a specialist in DNA, it seems to change every other year. I know from what I've read about that, that that is even more inconclusive. <laughs> yes. But we, we will I will attempt to make sense of all this in, in my second episode on on Anglo-Saxon Britain. After the Romans kind of pull out round about 400 or whatever, that sort of Roman influence on Britain seems to be 
seems to disappear that the locals don't want to live in these smart stone houses and as well, you say the, the the language doesn't stick the roman urban settlements in britain are, are kind of artificial they're they are closer to um say large you know the american bases in afghanistan right. than they are to organic settlements and when the army withdraws then the economy that had been based on the presence of american soldiers with cash to spend collapses mm. as well so britain demonetizes very very rapidly um coinage which had been kind of introduced under roman influence in the the, the decades before the roman occupation just goes away and, and britain returns to um to, to barter as the basis for its economy and with the fabric of urban civilization collapsing so essentially does the, the opportunities for living in a, a swanky villa with mm. underfloor heating and wine and an <laughs> olive oil go but the people who lived in the villas simply you know they have they have new ways to display their power and their authority um and that essentially is to start put sit yourself at the head of a war band um and that basically seems to be what happens over the mm. course of the fifth century and, and call yourself a, a king uh, ultimately yes yeah thank you so much for that tom and giving me the stamp of approval from a good luck with it all yes well i've got a long way to go and i and i hope <laughs> i can uh hope i can entice you back to um talk about one of your favorite monarchs in a in a later episode yeah please do so there we are, 4,000 years covered in just one podcast, and we've still got a few hundred years to cover before we get to the start of the rhyme. We've got to get through the whole of the Anglo-Saxon period, which I shall be doing in the next episode of Willy Willy Harry Stee, along with my guest, the wonderful historian Mark Morris, as we continue our voyage up to the first Norman King of England, our first Willy, William the Conqueror, from whom our modern monarchy is descended. Follow and subscribe to this podcast. Go on, do it now. Then you won't forget, because then you'll get every new episode as soon as it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2023. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.